this this passage is rich, um, and so I'm pretty much going to jump right in. We have been in the Gospel of John for some time now. We call this Encountering Jesus because there are all of these extraordinary encounters with Jesus in the Gospel of John. And we learn so much both about Jesus himself in these encounters, and, but we also learn about ourselves. We also learn about our own hearts. There's something about Jesus, and I think that this is what he's getting at at the end. I feel like uh, the very last thing that Mervy read is, is, you can almost feel it, this mic drop moment where Jesus says, I have come into the world for judgment. And he says, um, to those who, who don't see, I give sight. To those who do see, I blind them, which is like, whoa. What he's getting at there is he, he's kind of reflecting on the, the fact that his mere presence does something. It, it divides. It, it creates this moment of decision in a person. And What's so interesting, and a couple commentators point this out, is a couple of chapters earlier, he actually says, I haven't come into the world for judgment. I've, I've come that people might be saved. And what he's getting at there is, is I haven't come to condemn. I've, I've come with saving work. But this is almost like him not so much revising that, but nuancing that a little by saying, but look, my mere presence, the, the, the reality of who I am forces a decision upon the human heart in a way that looks an awful lot like what I think he's getting at there is kind of that looks an awful lot like the final judgment, where it's like, are you in or are you out? And this is one of those passages where you see these two massively different responses to what Jesus has done. Actually, you see a few different responses, and I think they tell us a lot about our own hearts. If I had to sort of summarize where we're headed in this chapter, I'd probably say something like, Jesus' interaction with the man born blind and those around him reminds us how much encountering Jesus often looks like correction. How important correction is. How important it, it is to be open to maybe I don't see things as clearly as I want. Because the, the obvious headline of this chapter is the miracle of Jesus healing a man who was born blind. But this is one of what uh, John elsewhere, more clearly than he does here, uh, refers to as, as the signs in his gospel. You remember this from, from earlier? We haven't had a sign in a little bit, but this is one of the signs. So like the, the water turned into wine was one of the things that was explicitly called a sign that Jesus did. And these signs are both literal things that happen but they're signs because they point beyond themselves as a sign does. They point to something else. They signal something else. They announce something else. And in Jesus' case, often it's announcing, it's pointing toward an even deeper spiritual reality than the physical thing that was done. <clears throat> so as extraordinary, as extraordinary as it is to turn water into wine, that itself points to something far more extraordinary that Jesus is doing, namely ushering in the, the end of the world, which in the Bible is called this feast where there will be lavish wine and all these things. So yes, he turned water into wine, but there's also a sign aspect to it. So to here, yes, Jesus really does heal a man who was blind from birth, extraordinarily. In fact, the man himself says, I have never, you're going to love this guy by the end of this chapter, by the way. This is the more that I got into this this week. I'm like, 
This is the most New Jersey character in the entire Bible. You will, you will adore this man. And, and one of the things that he says is like, I've never heard of someone being, y'all heard of anybody? Like he puts it back on the Pharisees. He's like, have you ever heard of anyone from the foundation of the world being healed of blindness? This is an extraordinary thing that Jesus does. And yet, it points to something even more deeply true. It points to a spiritual truth, which is that one of the fundamental needs that all of us have is to be given spiritual sight. That one of the ways to describe the universal human condition is to say that we are spiritually blind. We do not see what we are supposed to see. The things that matter most are not things that we perceive instinctually, naturally, with, call it, the eyes of our soul, the eyes of our heart, right? This is language that both the scriptures and poets sort of speak to, that there's a deeper kind of seeing and perceiving that is necessary in order to grasp um, true salvation, in order to grasp true human flourishing. And Jesus is going to say, not only am I the sight of that, uh, or excuse me, not only am I the source of that spiritual sight, but once given that sight, I am what you most need to see. Off we go. As he passed by, follow with me, by the way, if, if, you, if you have a phone, a Bible on your phone, um, it'll be up here, but sometimes it's really helpful to, to have this right in front of you. There's Bibles underneath the chair in front of you. And while I spared Mervy all 41 verses, I'm not going to spare us. We're going to talk through all of this, okay? As he passed by, that's Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth. First thing to notice, a lot of times when Jesus is walking places, it's people in need who cry out to him. Here we have a reminder that Jesus, in his own sight, tends to see those who are suffering. Maybe we could say more than others. He, he approaches them. He moves toward them. Think of the Samaritan woman. Think of the paralytic a couple chapters back. Jesus moves toward those who are suffering, one of the most beautiful things about him. Now check this out. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Would that be your first question? If you pass by someone blind? I don't know, maybe it would be. Maybe it would be in your heart. Maybe you wouldn't say it. I just think it's extraordinary that they say it. What are they getting at here? They're getting at that they are so deeply steeped in a worldview that says, if you have a particularly difficult life, you've, you've probably earned it in some way. You probably deserve it in some way. Um, <laughs> and we love to say, we don't believe that. I wouldn't believe such a thing. I'm more theologically nuanced than that. Check yourself for a second. Step back. Do we not look at someone? Right? This is a blind beggar on the side of the road. This is a cast-off of society. And is there not something in our hearts and minds that tends to say, yeah, they're probably, like, I'm not there because, oh, maybe, maybe I made some better decisions in life. And they probably... Or maybe, uh, look, I'll give them this. Maybe they're parents. Maybe they came from a really awful family. There's got to be something. Someone messed up for this to be true. And this is the first correction that we see here, and it's a massive one. This is uh, brutally unloving when it's aimed at someone else. When you, when you perceive, whether in your heart or by your actions, 
yeah, you kind of brought this upon yourself. I don't even know your story, but I'm going to jump to that conclusion. This gets really real when you yourself go through something. Because that little voice in you doesn't get quieted necessarily. That a lot of us, when we go through the hardest things in our lives, tend to, even, even if you've been walking with Jesus for a while, tend to have some thought of, did I bring this on myself? Am I reaping what I've sown? And we call up prior sin, we call up prior failures, and we say, oh, I'm getting my just desserts now. And they say, Jesus, is that right? Is that a correct way to see and interact with the world, with my own story, with the stories of others? Jesus answered, verse 3, it is not that this man sinned or his parents, check this out, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So Jesus says, no, this is not the result of, of anyone's specific sin that this man is born blind. And this is a very, very important theological truth for us to grasp. Is that the scriptures, now look, is there a kind of suffering that is brought on by individual sin? Of course, right? Like you make enough horrible decisions, you decide some horrible things, and there will be consequences in your life. But the scriptures say the mathematics are not always that simple. That it is not necessarily the case that all personal suffering is linked to specific personal sin. Now what the scriptures do say is that all suffering is the result of sin in general. This world was not made to be a place of profound suffering. Instead, the rebellion between humanity and God caused a rift between us and God, and all that was meant to make this world what it was beautifully supposed to be was turned upside down. And now we live in a world where disease and sin and all of the things that, that cause our suffering all exist. So yes, suffering is the result of sin, but individual suffering is not necessarily. And, often, and, and I would even say that Jesus is putting the accent on, it is not mostly the result of individual sin. We do not have this sort of quid pro quo God who says, oh, cool, you mess up in that way, boom, lightning bolt over here. And yet most of us live with that fear our whole lives, which is another term for another time. Right now we're focusing on, on what Jesus is getting at here. What's interesting is Jesus says, nope, not the result of his parents' sin, not the result of his sin. He says, but so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now this is so interesting. What I don't think he's saying, or, or not exactly what he's saying is, this man went through however many years of suffering he did so that I can perform the miracle I'm about to perform. Full stop. Like, thank you for your 30 years of investment blind on the side of the road. Now I'm going to do a cool thing and it'll all be fine thereafter. I don't think that Jesus, we have to keep in mind who is, who is saying this. The one saying this has just escaped with his life from a crowd that wanted to stone him to death. The one who is saying this is now journeying ever closer to a cross where he himself will suffer and be separated from his father. Jesus is not some cold-blooded theologian who says, everything will be worth it once the miracle comes, everything's fine. But he is saying something that is profoundly true that we must hear, which is that no suffering is outside of God's ability to turn it into something that would give him glory. 
which is really hard to, which sounds lovely until, until you swallow that in your own story. And yet it's what Jesus is saying. I think here, I think that there's no better, actually someone in our church who, who pointed me towards this a couple months ago and I just can't get out of my head. It's something that Kimberly and I in our uh, discipleship course taught. We did a whole discipleship course on suffering. And someone directed me to um, the creation myth in Lord of the Rings, which is called the Silmarillion. I'm not like a Lord of the Rings person. All pastors are supposed to be required to be, um, but I'm like tangentially. But in the Silmarillion, um, the creation myth of it is that the creator god, whose name I surely don't know and can't pronounce anyway, um, because all the gods and everything are strange in Lord of the Rings, but anyway, I'll get on with it. Um, The creator god creates through a song, and, and, and God is sort of creating through this beautiful song. But this evil angel comes along and begins to sing um, notes that are out of tune with that creation song. And it's sort of lobbing these, right? So picture this beautiful song, ah, and everything's melodic and beautiful and harmonious. And out of that beauty, creation is coming about. And then this angel comes in and is like, ah, right? Like whatever that sounds like to you, right? And is just trying to cast this discordant, um, ugly music into the beauty of creation. And, and it's, a, right, it's an image of this beautiful creation that God has given us with deep meaning and purpose and grandeur. And yet human rebellion comes in and the work of the enemy comes in and Satan comes and tells his lies and becomes the father of all lies and the murderer from the beginning, as Jesus calls him in, in the very last chapter of this. But what happens in the in, in the Silmarillion is that the creator God uh, slowly, masterfully weaves in these discordant notes like a, like, a, like a gifted jazz musician into the melody itself, slowly but surely. I don't know if you've ever heard this happen, right? You kinda, uh, most of us don't understand jazz. I understand jazz a little bit. But if you've ever been in that moment where you're like, what are we doing in a you know, jazz performance? And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, we're back at the melody, right? Like that's the image that's being gotten at uh, in this creation myth. And eventually the music is even more beautiful for the way in which the master musician has woven in these discordant notes. Best picture that I've personally ever heard of this very nuanced understanding of evil, which is that nothing happens in God's creation outside of his design and permission. And yet, nowhere do you get the sense that God is the source of that evil. And yet, though nothing happens outside of his, right? Like, like this, this wicked angel couldn't do what they were doing apart from some sense in which God was allowing it to happen, but God's not the source of it. And yet God is so utterly, totally committed to creation and its purposes that there's nothing that can come into that, that he can't weave into something that actually adds to the beauty of redemption. That's what Jesus is getting at here, right? 2,000 years ago, in a lot less words than Tolkien, (laughs) right? In a lot less words than than I just used. He says, no, 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 no. Individual suffering is not linked to individual sin. And yet all suffering can be used in the purposes of God to ultimately bring him glory. His first correction, right? By the way, we got to get that out of our heads. Like, maybe let me just be a little bit stronger on that. We've got to get this whole thing out of our heads 
that you get what you deserve, right? Like karma and the Christian idea of God um, are worlds apart from each other, okay? Like the idea like really good people have really good lives, look around. There are some really wonderful, godly, amazing people who have really brutal lives. And you know what? You know what the scriptures are also really honest about? There's some horrible people who have some really lovely looking lives. In fact, the psalmist often goes there. God, why do the wicked prosper? Why do I look around and there's people who look way happier than I'll ever be, whose hearts are so far from you, right? Like the scriptures just have a much more complex view of of what an actual flourishing life looks like, for one, right? Normally we're bringing our definitions to those things, but also that these things just don't have a one-to-one. And in case you need like prime example number one, it's the one speaking in this passage, right? The greatest human being that ever lived ended up nailed to a tree. That tells you something about the world in which we live. And yet, that nailing to the tree is the most beautiful, spectacular, saving thing that ever happened in this story. (laughs) That's the story we're living in. Jesus says, we must, verse 4, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, night's coming when no one can work. What I love there is he says, the works of God. And then he says, you know who's involved in God weaving those works into something beautiful? It's us. It's not me. He doesn't say, I must be doing the works. He says, we must be doing the works, right? We are included in this. What Jesus is getting at here is he's very specifically getting at, I am still present with you. There is a really difficult season coming where I will no longer be doing public ministry. And so let's make sure that we spread as much light as we possibly can now. I think that it's very easy to then conclude, given the story of Acts that follows this and the birth of the church, that we are not living in the darkness when nothing good can happen. Jesus is now with us by the Spirit, and so these words apply to us. He says, we must do the work while it is still day. And church, it is day. It is day. And we must be part of that weaving of the awfulness of this world into something redemptive and beautiful. I have to keep going. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. (laughs) Jesus forever doing weird stuff, right? Like um, the woman caught in adultery, he gets down and he writes on the ground. He's spitting on people. Um... Why does he spit on the ground, make mud, and heal this man? I have no idea. I really don't. Like, the commentators are like, maybe it was seen as medicinal. Maybe it's just a way of Jesus getting, like, so close and intimate with this guy. What you have to realize is this guy, as far as we're told here, does not ask for this. Usually it's, Jesus, heal me. Jesus, save me. Keep in mind how this story goes. Jesus is walking by. He's like, oh, look, this there's, there's a blind man. It's like Jesus sees him. His disciples are like, who sinned? They have a theological conversation, and all of a sudden this man's being spit on. Right? This is very sudden. This is Jesus' initiative here. Jesus takes the step towards this man. I think that sometimes we think you only get a miracle if, if, if there's enough faith there, if there's enough asking, if there's enough requesting. Sometimes Jesus just does what he does. And in this case, Jesus just does what he does. I don't know why. I wish I had some great insight here. It's a very strange thing he does. He's Jesus. He gets to do these things. He tells this guy, go wash in this pool. You can imagine the guy's like, yeah, like, (laughs) I would like to wash, right? Um, And so he goes and washes in this pool. We're told parenthetically, which John's little parenthetical things are important. The, The word means sent. So the sent one, which that's one of the biggest titles that Jesus holds here. 
um, is that I'm the one sent from God. You'll hear that in this chapter. I'm sent from God, sent from God. The sent one sends this man to a pool that is called sent. It's almost like, Jesus, I've encountered you. Now you're going to go encounter me in this whole different way through my healing seems to be what's going on here. He went and washed and came back seeing. Notice we have no indication that Jesus was still there when he came back. Instead, we get the sense he just came back to where he lived because look at the next sentence. This is great. This is a great paragraph in the Bible. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it's him. Others said, no, he just looks like him. He kept saying, I am the man. (laughs) Just so great. So they said to him, then how are your eyes open? He answered, that man called Jesus made mud, anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. So they said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. This is a great, like, <laughs> this just has all the makers of, like, this is exactly how this went down. The, the, one, the one commentator that I particularly enjoy on the Gospel of John, his name is Frederick Bruner. Um, he calls this man the man who can only tell the truth. This guy just tells you the truth. And you'll see it as we go through the chapter. This is where he's just wonderfully jersey. He's like, I don't care who I'm talking to. I don't care who I'm looking at. Like, you're getting the truth from me. And I actually think that it's a, <sighs> we'll get to that later. This guy, I just love that he's going around saying, by the way, this is just an interesting little tidbit. When, he's, when he keeps saying in verse 9, I am the man, the literal words there are, he kept saying, ego a me, in, in the original language, which is the way that Jesus ends the last chapter, where he says, before Abraham was, ego a me, I am. This guy is like invoking the name of God. I don't know exactly what's going on there, other than maybe John is like, like toying with because the work of I am has happened on this man, there is such a deep identification that this man has before he even understands who Jesus is. I don't know, but it's very, it just jumps out and all the commentators are like, I don't want to touch this really, but it's kind of crazy that that's what he's saying is, is ego a me, the exact thing that almost got Jesus killed. So he's, they're like, where is he? He says, I don't know. Verse 13, they brought uh, to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind I don't know why they did this. I don't know if this was like, there's interesting possibilities here. This could be like, oh, this really cool thing happened. Probably our religious teachers would want to know this. Like God did an amazing thing. Maybe it's a little like, ooh, we don't want to be in trouble and not report that something happened. Whatever it is, it's unfortunate that they bring him to the Pharisees as we're about to find out. Keep in mind that the Pharisees in John's gospel are like the serious religious people. The serious people. The, The people who take their religion very seriously. So, um, verse 14 is a reminder. We're supposed to go, uh-oh. Verse 14. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Emphasis on he made the mud. Okay? Not on the miracle. He made mud. That's bad on the Sabbath to these guys. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received sight. So how did it go down? Check out my man. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes. Notice he doesn't say he made mud. <laughs> Most commentators say that's got to be on purpose. He's like, no, there was just mud around. He put it on my eye. He didn't make anything on the Sabbath. Again, good Jersey guy. Sometimes the truth, you know, you got to sort of massage the truth a little bit. And I washed and I see, which is great, right? He's like, this is what went down. Some of the Pharisees said, this man, meaning Jesus, is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. That's the headline to them. That's the headline. How did you go from being born blind to seeing, uh, he, he, made, he made, this man is not from God. He doesn't keep the Sabbath. That's their headline. 
Some of the Pharisees said, this, this man is not from God, for he does not keep set. Now check out others. Others said, oh, I don't think that's the headline. How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division. I love that the original word is schism. This is the first schism in the church, right? We've had so many schisms over so many things in the church. This, and there was a schism among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he's a prophet. <laughs> he's like, y'all can talk all you want. Like, I, I'm, I have sight. I don't know, he's a prophet. Let's go with that, right? This is, let's keep going because they have a second round now. The Jews, all right, so this is where they go. The Jews did not believe that he had been born blind. Now they go to the historical facts. Well, maybe you weren't actually born blind. Maybe, you know, you just had bad eyes or whatever and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked him, is this your son who you say, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, uh, yeah, we know that this is our son. Thank you for that question. Um, and also, you know, like as far as we recall, yeah, he was born blind. So they're like, yes. But how he now sees, we don't know. Now, this is almost certainly just fear of this moment, right? Like there's no way your son goes from not seeing to seeing and he doesn't share with you how it went down. We don't know how, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. It's a great line. <laughs> He'll speak for himself. Now, now, again, parenthetically, John wants to explain this moment, right? Like, are these terrible parents? Are they the worst? No, his parents, uh, his parents had said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. This was an official process. This was the worst thing that could happen to you as a Jewish person at that time. You would lose all your friends. You would lose family. You would lose faith. Uh, faith. You, would, you would lose access to your faith itself, right? Like this is a massive agreed upon punishment for confessing Jesus. And so they know full well. In other words, this is saying they know full well that it was Jesus. They're, they just don't know that it's worth it at this point to, be, to lose everything that they have. Therefore, his parents said, he's of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, give glory to God, which is an amazing way to start a conversation. We know that this man is a sinner, <laughs> which, which, you know, really opens up dialogue. Um, it's like, give glory to God. The only way you can give glory to God is to agree. With we know that this man is a sinner. He answered, <laughs> He answered this man from Jersey, whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know. This, this literally, the emphasis here is one thing. I know one thing, right? He's like, I'm not a theologian. I'm not particularly smart. I know one thing. And what is it? I was blind, now I see. What he literally says here, what's so beautiful, I know one thing. Uh, the, the translator's, put in that though I was blind, now I see. The, the literal words there are, I know one thing. I'm a blind man and I see. This man's blindness is so deeply integrated into his identity that in some ways he's still, still self-identifying, saying, I'm that guy. I'm the guy. Because if, if the disciples believe this about this man, then surely this was a more widespread understanding of who this man was, was he's someone, whether his parents sinned or he sinned, he's just living in what he deserved. 
And he's heard that and felt that, right? You only become a beggar by other people saying, you're not worthy of being in our company, in our family, in our home, in, in our social group. He has been cast out in every imaginable way because he is blind. And he says, that's who I am. I'm still that guy. I see, though. I know one thing. That though I, I don't know myself apart from my tragedy. I don't know myself apart from my brokenness. I don't know myself apart from my being ostracized from community. I'm seeing now. I'm, I'm a different person fundamentally at the core of who I am. That's the one thing that I know. They said to him, yeah, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? <laughs> he answered them exactly how he should, given our characterization of him. I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? <laughs> it's so good. He's literally goading them. He's so done with them. Um, which is just great. Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, <laughs> saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses, which there's this really cool little verbal thing going on here where uh, this word reviled, which probably stands out, it's like they reviled him, like, oh, what a fancy verb all of a sudden, is a word that is used throughout the Old Testament and most often used to speak of how the nation of Israel treated one of their specific leaders, guess who? Moses. It's a word that is often used of how the people of Israel treated Moses. So they revile him and they say, you're a disciple of Jesus, but we are, what, disciples of Moses. Do you hear the irony in that? It's like, yeah, you, you, you do sound a lot like the people who used to follow Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. <laughs> the man answered, see, you're loving this guy. Why, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone's a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Who gets it? He knows one thing, but whoo, he's on his way. He's on his way to understand a lot more than that. We have to be really careful um, I'll put it this way. Here at Jacob's Well, one of the, one of the gifts that our founding pastor gave us was, was this language of um, things that we hold in the closed hand and things that we hold in the open hand. Uh, in other words, th things that, that we see as, as theological non-negotiables, things that, that we just believe are so core to the Christian faith that we just aren't going to bail on. Uh, those, those are things like the full authority um, and... and truth of the scriptures, the full divinity and humanity of Jesus, salvation in Jesus alone, and, and maybe a couple that, that I'm leaving out, but that covers most of them. And then a bunch of things that we say, these are secondary issues that, not that don't matter, but that we don't believe are things worth breaking fellowship over. And so things like, what do you believe about Genesis 1? Things like, what do you believe exactly about baptism? Now look, 
we're, we're a church that has to function. So we have to make some decisions about these secondary things and just how we're going to live them out together. But we don't believe that we can't be in fellowship with people who disagree on these things. We believe that Christianity is really about these core things. And I, I've just, I find that enormously helpful and clarifying because every, every church, you kind of got to make these decisions. But I love that we're overt about you can sit here and gladly fellowship with us if you disagree with any given thing that I say in a sermon if it's in this, if it's in this open hand. I think where we can get in trouble is when we want so many of these things to be, to be closed. Because then what we start to do is that we narrow God's ability to work and we say, well, God can only work if these 27 things are all agreed upon and are all exactly what I believe. And we begin to cast doubt on things that are going on in other churches, whether locally or globally, and we say, yeah, okay, but they don't, they don't think that, they think there's a rapture, they don't think there's a rapture, or they think that Genesis 1 is literal or Genesis 1 isn't literal, or yeah, but they baptize babies, or they only baptize adults, right? And we can begin to take these things that Christians have disagreed with over the centuries, and we say God can only work in places where my definition is being lived out. And this can lead to a harshness, this can lead to a disunity, and I think what a passage like this is most saying is this can lead to us hardening our hearts to the wonderful work of God in the diversity of traditions and churches and nations in which he is working. It got really quiet in here. Um, we want to be really careful about not being that. Right? There is a... Because I think that one of the things... One of the reasons, right, like um, one of the theological traditions that most informs our churches is called the Reformed Tradition, capital R. And one of the tenets of the Reformed Tradition, this is for like 10 of you, is, is that the Reformation is always going on. In fact, one of the tenets is always be reforming. Always be willing, in other words, to receive correction. Always be willing to, like Martin Luther and John Calvin did, you know, 500 years ago or so, 400 years ago, to look at things afresh and say, maybe we're getting this wrong. As we take a fresh look at the scriptures, maybe we don't see this as clearly as we thought we did. And there is an arrogance that can often typify, um, especially uh, Protestant Christians, especially us American evangelicals, that says, no, we've got a corner on the market and everything we believe is exactly as it should and we're the arrival point in church history. And everyone needs to be what we are. When the posture needs to be, no, we are open, there's certain things we're going to hold. And you even hear that here, right? Like the identity of Jesus, like we're going to hold that. The exclusivity of Jesus, we're going to hold that. The scriptures, we're going to hold those as God's very word and authority in all things, but then we're going to search the scriptures and be willing to receive correction, whether that's in small ways or whether that's in really significant ways. Right? And so we, as your leaders, need to be responsible to be constantly submitting to this and not to just to some theological schema that we have made up that's the theology of me or even the theology of the elders and say, it has to fit that. No, it has to fit this. It has to fit Jesus' words and teaching. And that's what the Pharisees had gotten themselves into. These weren't awful people. 
These were people who just had such a, a closed hand around how God could work that somehow when God worked right in front of them, one of the most miraculous things, as this man is able to point out, there's not a lot of this in the Bible. This particular miracle is pretty unique. That it's right there in front of them. And they said, did you say he made mud? There's a version of that in all of our hearts. There's a version of that that lives in our church. There's a version of that that lives in the movement that we're a part of that says, yeah, but they don't believe, they do believe, they think we need to be people who are willing to say, hey, God can move outside of this community. And God can also correct his people in small ways and in big ways for as long as he waits to come. And may he do that and may we be open to it. I think one of the things that stands out so much in Jesus' final words here. Well, look, let's just continue. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing, right? That's the man's speech. Verse 34, they answered him, you were born in utter sin, would you teach us? Right? They go back to what the disciples had said. Well, you're a sinner anyway. You're a sinner anyway. That's their headline. You're not a man who was born blind and now has received sight. You're a man who was born in utter sin. You'll never be anything other than that which is the greatest act, that may we never hold someone back, right? This, this is where I, I think even our mindset towards baptism is so important, is what we want is we want conversion and then theolog theological accuracy immediately. We want conversion and then theological precision, you're going to answer all 20 questions right. Oh, how about you give a person some time, right? Like sometimes the only thing you have is, I was blind and now I see. I was this way and now I'm this way. I'm growing in my understanding of all of these other things, and sometimes we say, yeah, but you haven't grown enough, so I'm not even sure that that really happened to you. And the person says, it's not enough that I know one thing that he changed me? Maybe we'd be those who say, yeah, we'll come alongside you in that, we'll celebrate that, we'll not cast doubt on that, we'll help you grow and mature. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, would you teach us? And they cast him out. They treat him like a demon. This is the literal word for exorcism. They exorcise him. From their presence. Jesus heard, geez, I get emotional even just reading this. Jesus heard that they had cast him out and he found him. He went after him. Ooh. I love that. I love that. It's my favorite part of this whole passage. Jesus is like, what happened? All right, let's go find him. Let's go talk to him. Right? Because sometimes the hardest thing about becoming a disciple of Jesus is the church is not a place that even welcomes the work of God. And then where do you go? And my prayer for you is that Jesus would pursue you, that you would know that sometimes he has to be enough because sometimes we blow it, okay? But he'll find you. He's looking for you. He's pursuing you. He wants to talk to you and to clarify some things. He says to the man, do you believe in the son of man? He answered him, <laughs> Jersey, uh, who's that? <laughs> He's like, and who, sir, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him, right? He's not, he's not jumping right to, to conclusions. He's like, you tell me who he is, I'll probably believe in him because think about this. This is the first time this guy is seeing Jesus. Previously, he had only heard him. So Jesus comes up to him, and I can't help but think, I think the implication is he's like, oh, I think this is that guy. And that guy is asking me, do, do I believe in the Son of Man? He's like, well, I know, I know what you just did. Tell me who he is, and I'll, I'm probably game. See how he's teachable? Who's teachable in this moment? He answered, who is he, sir, that I may believe? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. 
Remember where Jesus also says this? He says it's the Samaritan woman. The one who is speaking to you is he. Right? Like this is one of the most beautiful moments where Jesus comes to someone, pursues them, and then they say, this is the deepest longing of my heart. Where can I find its satisfaction? And Jesus looks at them and says, you're standing in front of me. You're looking at me. He said, Lord, I believed, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I've come into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Of course, he's not talking literally now. He's working at that deeper level. He's always working at in the Gospel of John what literally happened, what it's pointing to. Some of the Pharisees near him were perceptive enough to, to know he's coming at us and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. This is an amazing statement. This man contrasted with the Pharisees is an amazing story, right? This man, all he can do is tell the truth. All he can do is be straightforward. He's not mincing words. He, he's not, um, he, he's like predisposed to the truth. And so when the truth comes along, he's so game to progress toward understanding that truth, capital T, is standing in front of him. In fact, one of the things that I did in my Bible that I'd recommend you do is up in verse 11, the first time he's asked who did this, he calls Jesus the man called Jesus. And I just circled that. Then down in verse 17, when the Pharisees ask him, who do you think he is? He says he's a prophet, and I circled that. Then uh, a little further down in his speech in verse 33, he says, if this man were not from God, in other words, he's believing that he's a man from God, and then verse, verse 35, Jesus calls himself the son of man, and I circled that. And then ultimately in verse 38, he says, Lord, I believe, and I circled that. Do you see the progression? First, Jesus is just a man. He's a man called Jesus. Then he's a prophet, someone who makes a lot of sense, right? If I had to put that in, in modern parlance, it's like he, this guy makes a lot of sense. And he's really, really brilliant and insightful. Then he's a man from God, maybe elevated a little bit over. Then he's this mysterious title of the Son of Man. And then ultimately he's Lord and worthy of worship. This guy goes from kind of defending Jesus to admiring Jesus to submitting to Jesus and his definition of who is the Son of Man. Now he's on his knees worshiping Jesus. This is the progression. This is what it looks like, is maybe Jesus is just a person to you. Maybe you have some inclination. Yeah, Jesus makes a lot of sense. He's interesting. Maybe you have some inclination. Yeah, maybe, maybe he's greater than most of the prophets. But he won't be who he actually is until he's Lord, until he's worthy of your worship. Which, what is worship? Worship is assigning ultimate worth to something. And he is, he is worthy those two words are, are linked, worthy and worship. He is worthy of you assigning ultimate value of your life, of everything that you've got to him. In contrast to the Pharisees who are so committed to their own definition of truth, who are so committed to the preservation of their right to decide how life should go, of their definition of things. That Jesus reveals himself just as much, if not more, right? They have had more proximity to Jesus than this man, and they miss it. 
they not only miss it, they, they overtly reject it. And I think that this doesn't sound maybe as, as profound as it should, but it's almost like one of the ways that we can most embrace and encounter Jesus is to be predisposed to correction, to be predisposed to say, I assume that there are ways in which I do not believe and embody the truth. To be predisposed to say, I'm, I'm going to assume that there are certain ways in which I need to change. And what's amazing is that the opposite is to say, I assume that I basically know the truth. I assume that I probably don't really need to change that much. And that I've probably got the market cornered on what a good life looks like. And you know what's so sad is so many of the people who fit into that latter group are religious people are church-going people, are apparently good Christians, who if you examine their hearts would say, oh, I see, I see, I get it, I know. And Jesus says, but now that you say we see, your guilt remains. He says, look, there's a one-time way in which you bow the knee and worship me and you understand who I am and you give your life to me but there's never an arrival point where you say, I see 2020 vision. He says, you've got to remain in a posture. There's got to be a sense in which it's always a part of you, not in some self-condemning way, not in some Jesus doesn't see beyond this, but in some way you've got to say, I know who I was and I know who I would be apart from him. And so I need to cling to him and I need to assume that I don't see as clearly and I need to assume that he needs to keep speaking and changing me and bringing sin out in my life and bringing error out in my life. And I'll keep bowing the knee before him when he does that. Jacob Swell, oh, that we were a church that's full of that type of heart posture because the world sees that and says, I might belong there. Wait, you've been a Christian how long? And you're still humble enough to say, I haven't arrived. I've still got stuff. I'm still figuring it out. I can belong there. When we become a community of the spiritually confident seeing, we become something other than what Jesus calls us to, and we become a place that is not safe for the spiritually blind. Do you hear that? How do you get there, though? You get there by seeing what Jesus did in order to make this possible, right? One of the things that is said again and again about Jesus on the cross is that there is a cosmic darkness that surrounds his death. In other words, Jesus puts himself under the ignorance, under the spiritual blindness of this world. He submits himself to it and, and the universe itself responds to it and goes dark in a moment. And says the light of the world, the spiritual light of the world is being cast out. And it's like creation itself is struggling just to stay on. And Jesus takes all of that upon himself because he believes it's worth snuffing out the darkness in order to bring light in your life. And if it was worth his life to bring that to you, is it not worth some humility from us? Some just truth about who we are? Because so often that I'm arrived, I've got it together. It's just covering what you know to actually be true of yourself. And if you're exhausted with that, just let that down. It's what Jesus embraces. He don't need your perfection. 
In fact, that's the thing that he pushes aside. He wants your messiness. He wants your imperfections. He wants you to say, I don't see, Lord, help me to see. And then as we travel life, people will say, do you know that there's an, a point that I think you get to where you're following Jesus, where you've learned so much, you've sat under so many sermons, and you've been discipled, and all of these things, and then someone says, why do you believe in Jesus? And instead of an apologetics answer, instead of a case-by-case, you just go, I just know I was blind and now I see. (laughs) Do you know that that's both a starting place and often what actual spiritual maturity looks like? Is I feel like I know one thing, that he's enough, and he is who he said he was, and he brings spiritual sight in a way that no one in all of human history has been able to do. Would you trust him today? Let's pray. Father God, thank you, Lord, for the truth of this passage. Lord, thank you for the example of this man born blind um, who just resonates with us, Lord. Uh, God, thank you for a simple faith that's willing to submit to you, take the journey of understanding more and more of who you are. God, would you just humble us as a people? Would you humble each of us individually, God, that we would have a posture that expects and embraces correction as just the normal part of what it looks like to follow you. God, if there are those who, even as we were talking today, are able to identify, man, I I know I'm spiritually blind, that I haven't seen Jesus the way that he's being revealed to this man, Lord, would they put their faith in you today and ask you for that spiritual sight to perceive you for who you are? And God, for those of us who have been following for a while, we just pray that today would just be another moment of grace. God, that the invitation, um, that you find us when discipleship gets really hard, you find us when others cast us aside and judge us, Lord, you find us, raise our heads up and invite us to worship you again. And so may this be that moment for us this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.